Good morning, church. I want to begin by thanking you as a church for the generosity of your welcome to our family, into your family, over these past months that we've been here. From the time we walked into this congregation, we felt really embraced, uh, known, and seen by you. Uh, And we've really appreciated that welcome from you here at the service of Word and Table and through the conversations and care that you've offered to us. So on behalf of Sylvia, Elliot, Vincent, Annalise, and myself, I say thank you. Uh, And a special shout out to the Colicello small group. You know who you are. You are, I think, the best small group here (laughs) at Church of the Incarnation. So thank you all uh, very, very much. This brief introduction is fitting given our text for this morning. In the season of Lent, we are focusing in, in a special way, on Jesus' travel narrative as he and the disciples make their way to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration and, as we know, Jesus' death. As we travel on the way with Jesus toward death and new life, he offers us new ways of seeing and living as we follow after him in the company of one another. The seeing we might call faith, for it is learning to see those things that are deeper than mere appearance. The living we might call works or discipleship, for Jesus not only causes our eyes to be opened through faith, but he also enables our faithfulness. That is the works that faith produces through the mercy of God. And we must place the mercy of God at the front and center of our lives because it is our gracious God who makes our very lives in this way of discipleship possible. In the book of Luke, meals take center stage. Reading through Luke during the season of Lent can be a bit of a challenge because we run into feast after feast after feast. Lucky for us, today is a feast day. Um, My kids know that because on Sunday mornings we have waffles and bacon which are two of the things my children decided they were abstaining from uh, during the fasting days of Lent. And uh, so we're diving right into the feast this morning as we look at Luke chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn with with me to Luke chapter 14. In Luke 14, we actually have two meals taking place, and we'll take each one in turn because the lessons build on one another. In the first case, we see Jesus dining in the home of a Pharisee. He's been welcomed into a home for a dinner. And the wonderful thing that we see over and over about Jesus is the company that he keeps as he travels. He eats with close friends, sick folks, lawyers, rich people, poor people. So long as there is a party happening and an invitation, Jesus will be present. And in fact, as we shall soon see... Jesus attends these parties in order to issue an invitation of his own to the party to end all parties. But we'll get there in a moment. As Jesus reclines around the table with the lawyers and the theologians, there's a trap being laid, and we soon learn what it is. In the midst of the party is a man sick with dropsy. Now, dropsy, the name dropsy sounds a bit whimsical maybe, it doesn't sound very bad. So the modern medical community renamed it to edema. 
and uh, some doctor friends in the congregation caught me after the first service and made sure I was pronouncing that word correctly because I think I butchered it the first time around. But they have experience with this condition, and it really isn't any fun at all uh, if you have this condition called uh, dropsy or edema. A person with dropsy retains fluid under the skin and often around the organs from leakage from small blood vessels and thus appears puffed up. It can be quite painful, especially if the fluid retention is around the the vital organs. And it's not bad enough that this man is suffering horribly physically, but some of those at the denter want to use him and his sickness as a gambit in a high-stakes game of who knows the law best. Throughout the middle chapters of the book of Luke, the Pharisees and lawyers have been circling back again and again to this question of Sabbath observance, trying to trap Jesus. And it's really no wonder that the Pharisees focus in on Sabbath. The Sabbath is hugely important to Israel and their relation to God. This morning, we recited together the law of God in our worship guide, asking God to incline our hearts to keep his law. And bridging the laws that focus on our love of God and those that pertain to love of neighbor is this command to keep Sabbath. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, each time God calls his people back to covenant faithfulness, there is an emphasis on keeping the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are not wrong in stressing the importance of Sabbath observance. It is indeed key to covenant keeping. Hear these words from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 56, 1 through 2 and 4 through 5. My salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps their hands from doing any evil. Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. As the Isaiah passage makes clear, God's intent is for his covenant people to be in his presence in joy. And in God's presence, there is Sabbath keeping and there is rest. So now that we've taken the Pharisees' side in the matter of insisting that Sabbath observance is key to covenant keeping, why is Jesus so hard on them time after time as they insist upon it? Well, the answer to that lies in this account we see of the sick man in their midst. The text cuts right to the chase. The man who is on the margins of the party here suddenly becomes its focal point. Jesus asks of the Pharisees the contentious question that gets right at the heart of Sabbath observance. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Silence. And how appropriate. The Pharisees are such good Sabbath observers, they are refusing even to work their tongues. The Greek word here for silence actually means at rest. A Sabbath pun. And Jesus even tries to give them an out by showing these Pharisees that covenant faithfulness is a rescue business as God reaches out to us and we reach back to God and then to others. Love of God and love of neighbor, the fulfillment of the law. And again, silence. And then Jesus does something beautiful. 
In my Bible, it says that Jesus took him, that is the sick man with dropsy, and healed him. Other translations say, taking hold of him and healing him. But by far the best is that Jesus embraced him and healed him. And here we get to the crux of the matter. Sabbath has always been about embrace. Covenant is, after all, a marital image more than it is a contractual one. God has come close to his people, embracing her, being with her. God's intention with us is always of embrace, and Sabbath is that set-apart time to come fully into the embrace of God, to be remade over and over again. The Pharisees miss this, sadly, because they are living into Sabbath as duty, completely missing the point of the arc of their scriptures in God, desiring to be with. By embracing the man with dropsy, Jesus is reminding him and them and us that the kingdom is about covenant, and it is a covenant with a very particular God, the one who sees, who knows, who loves, who heals. And Jesus, in his embrace, also makes whole the one who is sick. Thus healed, this man is sent from the banquet back into the world that Jesus loves and came to save. But the problem of the Pharisees is even more deeply seated than a mere misreading of scripture or covenant forgetting, and it has disastrous social implications. When embrace is removed from covenant, you begin to lose subjectivity and make objects out of people and ultimately out of God. When you fail to see the imprint of the embrace of God in his glorious creation, everything becomes idle. Midas touch. And when you begin to turn living things into idols, your heart begins to harden as well. For what you love, what you love the most, you begin to worship. This is the age-old sin of pride, a turning inward When ourselves become the primary subject and actors in the story, we lose our reference point in our creatureliness and become gods unto ourselves. Having become gods in our own image, we begin to measure all creation by our image and become blind to our deep need and the needs around us. In our time, in our age here in the United States, In our world, neoliberalism defines our current moment and cultural commitments. In the neoliberal age, we are being trained as individual actors and consumers, void of any transcendent reality or bonds of spiritual solidarity with others who suffer deeply under the human condition. In such a time as this, the bonds of community are snapped by systems that make totalizing claims upon our lives as Craig Bartholomew so clearly pointed out last week. How can we resist this? For resist we must if we are disciples of Jesus Christ. When I was around 15 years old, I received an important catechesis in the faith that helped to form me as a disciple of Jesus, the suffering one. My father was a pastor and unafraid to initiate his children into the world of pastoral care. One such instance of his pastoral care for me was an invitation to join him in hospice care for a man in our congregation who was dying. 
This man was an esteemed elder in the church and had been a grandfather figure to me as a young man emerging into adulthood. I would often go to his home and we would share our stories with each other. He would share his love of stamp collecting. I would try to interest him in baseball. Uh, He would share stories of the faith and his life as a missionary and a pastor. And he was a beautiful example for me of the way of faithfulness in the world. Night after night, my dad and I would make this trip to the hospital to talk, pray with, touch, and sit silently with this man in his moments of incoherence. In several such moments, I remember this dying man speaking strongly and even rudely to the nurses and aides who came to comfort him. As a young man, this out-of-character speech from this elderly man that I deeply admired and respected took me aback. But seeing my father respond with patience, firmness, and gentleness helped me to see that dying as living has its own rhythms and surprises, and that to really see this man in all of his complexity and beauty. To have been present night after night as death took hold of this man was a profound lesson to me of bearing with those we love in their suffering and learning not to be afraid of death. In those moments of patient, waiting presence, death lost its sting for me. As I heard stories of the hope of the resurrection and life to come, and saw those stories reflected in this man and those who came to care for him and tend to him in these last moments before the ultimate embrace with his Lord. What would it mean to be catechized as Christians, to be trained as Christians by bearing deeply with the suffering and dying in their daily lives as part of our worship of God? In our culture, impatience, the need for control, and the fear and denial of death hang heavily over our lives. And yet, we are a people who come weekly to the Eucharist to share Christ's body and blood to be made into a people who in the valley of the shadow of death do not fear death because we know that our Lord is really and tangibly present here. As Dr. M. Therese Lysot, theologian and bioethicist at the University of Loyola Chicago has said, through the Eucharistic heart of the church, we become capacitated to live differently. Christian tradition tells us that the writer of the Gospel of Luke was a physician. Luke would have been intimate with the realities of suffering and death in the ancient world. In parable after parable, story after story, like the one we see here in Luke 14, Luke places Jesus amongst the sufferers and asks us to look carefully and deeply. In the culture of the New Testament, sickness and disability are often markers of shame in the community. But Jesus consistently rebukes the shaming narrative of the culture by first honoring the integrity of the individual and his or her place in the community, and then by restoring them to wholeness. Our scriptures, our tradition, our worship form us to attend to the sick and wounded among us and to be formed into the kind of communities that are deeply shaped by the virtues of patience and grace so that we can respond rightly to suffering in the world. As we attend to the cast-off members in our society, we become agents of healing, transforming shame into honor and curses into blessings. Thus, our lives come under the tutelage of the process of 
remembering us as the body of Christ, where the living and the dying bear with one another in learning to be the people of God. And it is in having our minds renewed through repentance, where the blinders of our society are revealed and the enshrined values of radical human autonomy and economic efficiency are revealed for the dismemberment they cause. So renewed, we can be prepared as a people to discern well those things which bring us more fully into the perfect will of God. My son and I were having a philosophical conversation this week. This sometimes happens around our house, not real often, I assure you. But he had built a Lego Corvette in the room that we were sitting in and was then tearing it down again from the roof to the drivetrain. After he had it completely disassembled and in pieces on the floor, I asked him, where's the car? Right here, he said, pointing to the pile of pieces on the floor. That's the car? Well, he says, once it's built, it's the car. But all the pieces are right there. Why does it have to be built to be the car? You can see the problem here philosophically. What is substance? What is essence? In neoliberal society, we are the car pieces spread all over the floor. We are separate and autonomous, not meaningfully connected to any other piece to make a workable structure. We are only useful so far as our society deems us so and can maneuver us into places of productivity to its ends. But we feel the disconnectedness in our souls and long to belong to the whole and to be embraced as the beloved in a beloved community. And this is the underlying drama of the first several verses of Luke 14. The man with dropsy was healed because he did not refuse the embrace which made him whole and restored him to the community. The big question in the text is, will the Pharisees also not resist the embrace of Jesus? The subtext is subtle but staring us right in the face. The man with dropsy is sick because his body is retaining fluid and he is becoming, has become puffed up. The Pharisees have become sick because in stripping the referent, God the creator and the sustainer of their lives from their ethics, they have made for themselves idols in their own image. The point that Jesus is trying to get across is that the embrace that the sick man received is also on offer to the Pharisees and to us if only we realize the sickness in our souls. In the ancient world, the condition of dropsy was often associated with an insatiable craving for water, a thirst that could not be quenched. And now Jesus gets straight to the point. By intimating that the Pharisees are puffed up with pride and an insatiable greed for positions of honor and for wealth. And here is the profound irony. The Pharisees can never be true Sabbath observers because in their insatiable quest for honor, they cannot rest. In attempting to elevate themselves to positions of honor, they are solidifying their objectivity and thus becoming statuesque, hardened. In order to bring them back to life, Jesus offers them the uncomfortable position of being seen truly for who they are. Returning to Luke 14, beginning in verse 8. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, 
And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you see the difference between the current reality and what Jesus is imagining here? In assuming positions of honor, the Pharisees are relying on the blindness of social convention in order to project their idealized self upon the world. Jesus invites the Pharisees to take a position where they will be seen, where they can be called friend and invited to new life. The rub, of course, is that the Pharisees are currently not worthy to be called up and they know it. They are far from the one who wills them to be friends and have set themselves up as enemies instead. But thanks be to the God revealed in Christ who cures our sickness of soul and through the Spirit builds us into his glorious church, a people held together by the graciousness of God and his covenant love. When we turn to each other as we will in a bit each Sunday, a forgiven and redeemed people, and pronounce the peace of Christ to each other, what we are saying in a way is, I see you. Because God has honored and redeemed us in Christ, we can see each other as beautiful subjects and give each other honor as those beloved by God. Jesus comes to us this morning as the great physician, and we are always those in need of healing. We not only bear with the sick, we are each in turn the sick, needing to be seen in order to be cured, needing to be embraced in order to be cured. So Jesus' last great invitation goes out to each one of us here this morning. The feast has been spread. The meat has been slow roasted all day, and the invitations have gone out weeks ago. Now is the time of the party, a party to end all parties. And the messenger goes out to the friends of the host to let them know that the time is now to come. And one by one, the would-be partiers find lame excuses to pardon their absence. A field to look at, an oxen team to try out, a new wife to attend to. Now before you start thinking that all these could be reasonable excuses, they are not. No Middle Eastern business person would make a deal that didn't take weeks, if not months, to complete, having looked over the ground, having inspected the animals, having tried them out in a field. And the newly married man has likely been married for some time, as no host would plan a large banquet in town in the same month as a wedding, not if you want to stay friends with the bride and her family at any rate. Weddings in those days were feasts that lasted days, if not weeks. No, these are really lame excuses. And they aim to give a hint of respectability to the very real dishonor of not showing up to a feast given by a friend when you had already agreed to come. To decline the invitation at the last minute would be to dishonor the host and to leave his home and hospitality unclaimed. But the host won't be spurned. There is a feast laid and he will see it enjoyed so that his honor is upheld in the community, and so there will be a people who honor his name in the streets. And so once again, he sends out his messengers. 
to call out in the streets that a great banquet is ready and all are invited to come. Those who would normally catch no sniff of the delectable meats of society are not only invited but compelled, compelled to come. How irresistible this grace, how lovely. And they come all stumbling, blind, lame, and outcast to be embraced at the great banquet hall. Since this is a feasting sermon on a feast day and being preached in an Anglican church, we'd be remiss in not quoting Anglican priest, cook, and author Robert Farrar Capon, who writes this passage in his book, The Supper of the Lamb. Half of earth's gorgeousness lies hidden in the glimpse city it longs to become. For all its rooted loveliness, the world has no continuing city here. It is an outlandish place, a foreign home, a session in via to a better version of itself. And it is our glory to see it so and thirst until Jerusalem comes home at last. We were given appetites not to consume the world and forget it, but to taste its goodness and to hunger to make it great. That is the unconsolable heartburn, the lifelong disquietude of having been made in the image of God. All man's love is vast and inconvenient. We must put up with the bother of love itself and not just cut and run for cover when it comes. The original invitees to the banquet choose to cut and run, unable to deal with the lavish hospitality of the host. Like the Pharisees, they can't handle this generous love that invites them to the banquet with the broken and to find themselves broken and in need of healing. Since it's spring, at least I think it's spring, it keeps trying to snow and then it gets warm and it snows again. But I think it's spring, so let's consider the birds. Each spring, birds fly into the covered porch at our house and begin building a nest. Pretty soon, chirping betrays the new life present there, and our kids begin the spring ritual of climbing a ladder to peek into the nest. The hatchlings, blind and completely dependent on the provision of their parents, wait with necks extended and mouths open to receive from mother bird and father bird the feast that nourishes their bodies. Here again, Psalm 81:10. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. The Lord of the banquet is not stingy in giving the only food that can truly satisfy. The God of the covenant, the one who frees us from bondage, desires to give us food that satisfies. All we are asked is to lift up our heads to receive from God our healing. Like baby birds utterly dependent on our provider, we come to the feast open-mouthed. We come to the one who calls to us, friend, come up here, for he desires to be with us. Jesus is calling each one of us this morning with urgency. He is so kind, and he loves us too much to leave us in our pain. The time is now to turn from pride, from inwardness, to accept his invitation of love. As we turn to accept God's offer of love to us in Christ, we receive our identity in being so loved and turning that love outward to see one another. 
Last summer, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team from Harrisonburg that went to Amman, Jordan, to partner with a local church there that was doing ministry to refugees. If you know anything about the refugee crisis, one of the largest refugee crisis in modern history that we know of, displaced people around the world. And a lot of those are from the region of the Middle East, and so many refugees from Iraq, Christians from Iraq, Muslims from Syria are flooding in to Jordan and are being welcomed there by the government and by the church. And the very small Christian church is being faithful in opening their lives, opening their doors to refugees. And so part of our work, which didn't really seem like work to us, but it was going and sitting in homes of refugees and of hearing their stories and bearing with them their burdens of pain. Uh, Many of them had had to flee the country on 48 hours notice from Iraq uh, when ISIS came into their town, said, you have 48 hours to leave or die. And so many of them fled to different parts of Iraq and eventually to Amman. And we had the wonderful privilege of sitting with these refugees. But even before that, we would come to the door of their homes, Americans, Iraqi Christians waiting, and they would open their homes to us. And they would serve us feasts of Coke and chocolate and whatever else was on hand that they could provide from their meager provisions. But to us undeserving of this love, it was a feast. Each and every time, a feast that we could partake of because the welcome was there, the embrace was there. Day after day, we received this feast at the hands of our brothers and sisters from Iraq. But it wasn't, it wasn't even the biggest feast that God had in mind. On our last day that we were there, we went to the home of an elderly woman. Uh, she was from Iraq, And uh, if you know the story of Iraq, Iraq has one of the oldest Christian communities in the world. And so she had come from that long history of of Christianity and of faith. And she began sharing her story with us through an Arabic translator, uh, sharing about the pain in her life, uh, and yet time after time saying, God is so good, God is so good. And she shared with us that God had given her the gift of healing, And it was a gift that she was able to use freely to heal people that were in pain that would come to her. And I knew as soon as I heard that, that God had laid out a feast for me. Um, And I asked her, I said, through the translator, would you pray for me? Would you pray healing on my life? And she said, of course. And so I walked across the room from where I was sitting and knelt in front of her couch. And she made the sign of the cross on my forehead. She put her thumbs on my wrist, and she began to pray passionately to God on my behalf. Um, In Arabic, I didn't know what was going on, but I could tell that these prayers were going up to God, and they were fervent prayers, and they were for me. And um, I was sort of pressed down by the weight of this woman's prayers, but also lifted up at the same time. And after a while, she stopped, and I attempted to, to rise to my feet, and she pushed me back down. She wasn't even beginning to get started. Uh, <laughs> She went at it again. She put, her hand, she put her hands on my heart, on my chest, and she continued to pray for me. And after a while, she, she ended her prayer, and I went back across the room to the couch, sat down, and she said, through the Arabic translator, um, she said, there's a fear in your heart, and something happened to you, a traumatic event in your past when you were a youth that caused this fear to be lodged in your heart, and God is healing you of that fear. God is healing your heart. And I knew it right away what it was, because there indeed was a traumatic event 
in my life uh, that involves someone that I love very deeply. And it put a fear in my heart of trusting God, of intimacy with others. And through her prayers, this woman was inviting me to the feast, to a wonderful feast, to an embrace, an embrace that she had to offer me because she had been embraced by God. I'm still living into that healing, still living into that embrace. In a moment, we will hear the call to come to the feast that is the Eucharist. As we humbly come as friends to God's table, we lift our hands to be filled with the body of Christ, given for us and for our salvation. As we put our lips to the cup to receive the blood of Christ shed for us and for the world, as we share in the suffering of Christ and receive his broken body into our own, we are capacitated to extend healing and grace to the world that God loves extravagantly. We can learn to see and to embrace. And for those who have never tasted this feast, who have never responded to the call to come to the banquet, now is the time. God's feast is good, and it will satisfy you. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Come with the saints to the supper of the Lamb. Amen.